welcome to episode 217 of the 1099. Ladies and gentlemen, I am your host, Joseph Noop. As always, I'm glad you're here with us. And today, I am so glad to have the man behind her story and the new Telling Lies out now on Steam and iPad. Mr. Sam Barlow, how are you? I'm good. I'm excited to be here. Is uh, is Telling Lies also available on iPhone, or was that a was that a step too small for Telling Lies? No, it's on iPhone. Like, oh, okay. People good, ask good me know. like, which is your preferred platform? And I I love all of my children equally. <laughs> there is definitely something uh, extra intense about some of the scenes and experiences where you you have characters talking on their phones, and you can sit in your own bed and play it on a phone. Uh, definitely gives it a little something. Yeah. Uh, definitely. And, and I think that's, uh, part of the beauty of telling lies is it feels a little more intimate, a lot more intimate than, um, her story, which was, uh, kind of police procedural interview footage. But, uh, the game telling lies has been out now for a couple of weeks. Uh, how I, I got the chance to play through it all and, uh, found a, a good portion of the footage in the game. Um, how, how are you feeling looking back on it now? Feeling pretty good. Um, it was obviously the weirdest thing to put out because with her story i was very much like when i made her story it was my first indie game like it could easily have been my last and i was just making this thing that delighted me in the hope that enough people would like it but i was being also very uh i was being very frugal <laughs> i was being very efficient <laughs> like i'd made proper video games for like 10 plus years so i knew how to schedule these things and be sensible so i was like i'm making this thing which uh you know if nobody buys it that will hurt uh, but if you know if a small number of people buy it then i will at least kind of covered my costs um, and then it blew up and turned out lots of people enjoyed the same things that i did and liked it um, but you know making something like that that for most people they feel like it came out of nowhere and was a surprise and, and that was part of the excitement around it to then follow it up uh is a whole different ball game and you know the the world of video games in 2019 versus 2015 is, mm -hmm. is different again like you know when i put that game out in 2015 we were still kind of enjoying the fruits of the shift to digital like there was you know we had the kind of first wave of, of indie games that were able to do something interesting and different and really take hold of that kind of marketplace and we were still in the sort of uh the first the kind of honeymoon period really still in 2015 and now just the number of games uh number of places you can buy your games just you know it's it's very very different um so yeah it's i i kind of had no idea how it would be taken i didn't know if it was going to be that kind of difficult second album thing the extent to which people would have like cling to their memory of her story and want it to be exactly the same as that and i, I like sam barlow's definitely... old music not so much as new music yeah yeah totally and i think that you know there is perfectly they are very different games uh despite having you know a structural level similarities like they're very different in tone and feel and, and some of the ethos of how i designed them so it's it is perfectly valid to be someone that's like no her story i liked her story and then there were going to be people that are like oh i much prefer telling lies i wasn't really sure how that would play out um but uh yeah the reviews have been stellar uh so people have kind of embraced 
what's different about this thing um mm. and there still seems to be a market for it so i remember um i remember did didn't her story win either an igf or a gdc uh, award in 2015 it won not not to show off but it won all of them uh. <laughs> <laughs> nearly all of them I, I, at the time i don't i got, it was like the lucas pope award for, right like, right doing everything but yeah no it got the got the grand prize at igf uh it got a narrative prize uh it got yeah there were like three i had like a whole load of them um yeah it got like i i seem the, to remember all that yeah. now because uh 20 it a was, bunch if, of that, if that was the uh the 2015 gdc awards uh that was my first time attending gdc as a like relatively greenhorn uh freelancer and whatnot uh and, and yeah now that you mentioned that i seem to remember yeah there was someone who went up there for like a third time and said i ran out of shit to say the first time i went up here so thank you i, I mean it's, it's the hardest thing because you have to balance a level of arrogance or confidence where you're right. like i'm going up to accept one award and i have in my head a speech or some material do i pace it like do yeah. i if i hold material back that's being so arrogant right to assume that I might get called up again. Tune in later uh, for part two of this But it was the same. Speech. It was at the BAFTA Awards. I think her story got three. It was the same thing of like, I can't mm. imagine they're going to call me up a third time. So like, do mm. I, like, if I want to say something poignant about the spirit of indie games and I want to be, you know, saying something inspirational, like when do I drop that one? And uh, I think I, I think I did a decent job of, of trying to <laughs> trying to pace out uh, the different bits and pieces, but yeah, no, that was that was incredible. Uh, the yeah, to, again, to made this thing that was very much. I'm just going to make this weird little thing that I think is cool, um, and to have it uh, kind of get all those awards and stuff was mm -hmm. was pretty special. Well, we're here today to talk about uh, mainly about telling lies, your new game, and I. Being a, a games media writer, of course, I, I love it whenever a game has really interesting, compelling writing. And uh, But the game design aspect of Telling Lies 2 was really fascinating to me. Before we dive into this, I suppose, for people who may not be familiar with Telling Lies, what is what is the back-of-the-box pitch for what Telling Lies is as a game? Um, well, the hardest thing about making Telling Lies is coming up with the back-of-the-box pitch. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it's essentially a uh a game about searching through secretly recorded video conversations between people um, and connecting the dots putting together this this kind of jigsaw puzzle of a story um hang on a minute let me just Don't worry about it. Yeah. turn off this door buzzer um i will Go back to start your question. Um, yeah. It's uh, essentially a game about searching through secretly recorded video conversations between these characters. Um, and through listening to these conversations, putting the pieces together. So it has that element of, uh, of being like an investigation. It's uh, something of the feel of like a cold case kind of show where you're putting these pieces together and figuring out what's going on um and it's you know it has that 
like the, a, a movie that I was watching lots when we were conceiving of this was uh, The Conversation, which is this movie about Gene Hackman, who uh, is a secret surveillance guy, and he records this conversation, and the whole movie is him listening over and over to this conversation and trying to figure out what was really going on um, and, and kind of get to the bottom of the truth. Um, and there's something of that kind of metaphor of, of scrubbing through hours of footage uh, that you see in cop shows and spy shows um, that really is, is like that's the core mechanic of the experience. Kind of the uh, I people will cite stuff like Rashomon, the famous I think Akira Kurosawa film. I could, mm -hmm. I could be wrong, um, and and just the the nature of lies in movies, right? Um, I I re although from a game design standpoint, I read your Washington Post interview, and I think one of the things that connected most with me reading that was. Some folks might think of you as like a narrative game designer, a game really heavy on story, but also you're kind of building a Metroid game. Uh, and for folks who don't know the, the history behind like Metroid or Metroidvania, that's like, you know, you go into an area and you see a couple of different routes you can go, uh, but you only have the tools to go through one and you've got to find some new tool or ability uh, to be able to come back to that initial area and then go towards the new routes uh, and the world opens up in that layered uh, kind of octopus tentacle kind of way. Uh, y you must be a big Metroid fan because I believe you you hemmed on that one in that interview, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and I think there and, and two other things that are unique to the experience of playing a Metroid game are one, uh, the amount of backtracking uh, right, which is something people sometimes complain about in bad Metroid games. You know, whereas most platform games or exploration games, you will move through an area once mm -hmm. and, and then it's gone. In a Metroid game, you return time and time again to the same locations. Uh, and it might be that you have a new power or something, uh, or you come at it from a different direction so that it's, it's, it's different each time. Um, but the beautiful thing about that is you over time build up a familiarity with the world itself. So it stops being, it stops for me feeling like a piece of level design and it becomes a place that's almost lived in. Like you recognize and have this mental map in your head of the world, which makes it that much more real and um, you know, more enjoyable. Um, and that was kind of a big part of what I wanted to take from those games and, and put into the story space. Um, and then the other thing that is a more kind of niche part of the Metroid experience is the whole idea of sequence breaking, right? which is that the, you have these these clockwork pieces of level design in, in a traditional Metroid game. Uh, but because the uh, designers give you a lot of power and freedom in those games, it's often quite easy, um, or at least encouraged in some cases, you can step outside the route that they planned mm -hmm. um, and you can figure out early on in the game, I can actually climb this mountain by using this special wall jump ability. Or if I actually do this clever thing with these bombs, I can skip this whole section. Um, and so that was another thing as well. Like, and, and you see that particularly in uh, the most recent amazing Nintendo game, Zelda Breath of the Wild, where you saw Nintendo looking to the kinds of freedoms that you see in, in kind of Western open world games mm -hmm. and combining that with some of the traditional 
kind of mechanical craft excellence that they normally have. And, and you have this world that's incredibly free. Um, and, and for me, at the heart of what I've done initially with, with her story and much more so with Telling Lies is to look at how we tell stories in games. And uh, like my go-to examples, if you think of games like Bioshock, System Shock, Gone Home, uh, the Silent Hill games I worked on, there is this tradition of games where you have a, a, an amount of freedom to explore the 3D world. Mm -hmm. And that's the engaging minute-to-minute -minute action. And you might shoot and hunt down supplies in that world and find key cards and do all that gamey stuff. Uh, some of it might have some of that, that kind of Metroidiness of, of exploring a 3D space. But the story itself in all of those games is pretty much a cold case story. Like a lot of them are kind of detective stories. You turn up and everyone's dead. What happened? Yeah. Uh, in Gone Home, you turn up, everyone's disappeared. What happened? Uh, and as you're doing all the fun 3D exploration stuff, you're finding audio logs, uh, little diaries. Every now and then there might be a, a piece of environmental storytelling where there's like a skeleton with a gun next to it. And you're like, yeah. oh, I, I see what happened here. And the leap for me was to look at that. And, and I've made a bunch of these games and was obsessed with, you know, I'm a huge Metroid fan. It was that sense of 3D exploration being this wonderful thing that we can do in video games. And But I, I got to the point where I, trying to tell stories in this way, looked at it and I wondered if the exploring of a 3D environment was so naturally enjoyable and immersive that we used it as a prop. And the, the kind of big leap was to go, what if I took all of that exploration and that sense of growing mastery and familiarity, of creating a mental map of an environment, of uncovering keys and locks and, and this sense of, of slowly, like you say, spreading out like a, a bunch of octopus limbs. Um, if I took that and applied that directly to the story, so rather than the story just be these little bits of content that we find within this exploratory experience. What if I applied all of those exploration verbs to the story itself? So, mm. you know, in her story, you the, the whole game takes place on a computer desktop and you're watching clips. And then when you watch a clip, you might, as a detective would, notice a certain word or phrase or something that was mentioned by a character. And you can then type that in and search and it will pull up clips where that same word is used elsewhere. And so you navigate between these little bits of story, almost as if they're rooms in a Metroid game. And, you know, by listening and paying attention to the story and the words that are used, you build these connections. Um, and, you know, there are scenes that you will see in Telling Lies and in her story that on a first view might feel like they mean something. And then only later, having seen other stuff, you realize that there was a whole different interpretation. Um, exactly. So there is this sense of this changing thing, this familiarity with it. Um, and then in terms of like the sequence breaking, the, the thing that I think people really loved about both games is oftentimes if, if you're playing a game that involves investigation or deduction, there will be uh, a very kind of gamey layer in which you're allowed to express those observations so mm -hmm. the most pronounced example is that the, the game hotel dusk at the end of each chapter you have to answer a quiz to prove that you've understood what's happening in the mystery but mm -hmm. you can only answer the questions that are asked uh, and so the beautiful sequence breaking idea with telling lies and her story is 
you know, if you're watching this stuff and you have an idea about what's really happening or you have a, 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 you know, some kind of deduction or you're reading between the lines, if you can figure out how would they talk about that, if you can, you know, uh, to use a, a non-spoilery example, you know, if it, uh, someone has a secret identity as Batman, right, and you've mm-hmm. inferred that, you could type in Batman and then it will pull up a clip in which someone's like, how did you guess I was Batman? And you're like, wow. Yeah. I formulated without any prompting this theory i tested it the game confirmed it and all of that is happening in this this mental model layer but there's there's still this feedback loop within the game so you get this ability to really progress at your own pace to follow your own curiosity you really define the route through this story content um in a a very kind of free way one uh one thing i really enjoyed and you mentioned this like the the getting to the top of the mountain aspect in a uh like metroid or a zelda game uh getting there a few hours before most people will because you figured out the wall jump trick uh telling lies and her story in a way can also kind of sequence breaking can also i feel like mean uh even in those games, even if you do manage to like kind of break it a little and get to the top of a mountain, you're still going in a relatively straight line. You say like, I want to go to the top of that mountain. Okay, I'm going to go here through this route with this ability. But telling lies, there is this ability to skip further ahead than you may have anticipated and see the conclusion of a character story or something close to the conclusion uh-huh. of a player's of a character story and be like oh shit oh shit how did we get here and it's almost like get, like zelda getting to the top of a mountain but like the last 30 minutes are all a blank like what what, what happened and like what happened along the way to me getting here like what what was sacrificed what was fought for you know kind of thing um, so I, I certainly appreciated that. You you mentioned you always seem to mention Hitchcock as a big inspiration. Uh, I I I read uh, as I tend to do. I read a few things about the inspirations of the various like developers or writers that I'm talking to, and uh, I assume you are probably familiar with the lying flashback concept. Uh huh. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. And did did that factor into uh, your writing and your kind of story design process at all? So, it's like the reason that I am a huge uh, Hitchcock nerd and the thing, like I, I almost proposed a GDC talk once uh, with the provocative title of, of Hitchcock was the world's first great game designer. <laughs> uh, I didn't, but. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But he like the the thing that for me is very uh, specific about Hitchcock is that he was a filmmaker and storyteller who 100% understood the story he's telling is not the story in the script. It's not even the story on the screen. It is the story in the minds mm-hmm. of the audience. And everything he did on that page and on the screen was to give information to the audience, which the audience would then use with throwing their own imagination and their own desires and guilt and, and, and all the fun bits and pieces of the brain. And there was this, you know, Hitchcock would talk about playing the audience like a piano. Um, and, and, you know, he has the, uh, his, his example that he would always use of, um, you know, if, if there's a bomb under 
a table and you just see a dinner party and then the bomb goes off, it's a surprise and it's not interesting. Whereas if you show the audience the bomb is under there and then cut back to the dinner party, suddenly the whole thing is suspenseful because the audience has this little bit of information which they're adding to everything else. And they're now imagining what's going to happen. In four minutes, this bomb's going to explode. Mm -hmm. um, and that really is the, the difference between surprise and suspense. And for me, the all of the lessons I take from Hitchcock are to apply that to video games, to understand that uh, when someone sits down to play a video game, we can play all the same tricks. Like they have expectations and desires and reactions to what they're seeing on screen. And there's like a very sort of simple uh, take on video games. It's like, oh, people just like to fight stuff. And so video games let them fight stuff or whatever, and that's fun. Uh, and, and even at that level, you have to understand that there isn't an innate desire to fight or to, to be violent in humans. There is an innate desire to overcome obstacles. So the Hitchcockian approach would be to go, we need to present people with an obstacle that opposes them and they will then have a desire to overcome. So, so even in something as simple as just setting up a fight in a video game, understanding like how do you establish that in such a way that actually it's, it's more compelling. And I think the uh, example you make uh, of the, there's a, uh, a lying flashback, right? Which, which was a mistake that Hitchcock acknowledged uh, in one of his movies mm -hmm. Um and I think he's, his observation is you can have a character within the world of your story lie, um, and that is acceptable and makes sense. But if you show, he, I think his, the mistake he made was he showed a subjective flashback, which was a lie. Like the mm -hmm. thing you saw in the flashback was not how events occurred. And to the audience, that was a huge betrayal. And it was a betrayal of Hitchcock's method because if his whole method is about giving you enough information that you can make assumptions and it's perfectly acceptable that you might make the wrong assumption. And oftentimes that is, is like the best Hitchcock is like the opening of psycho. He uh, is, is beautiful. He zooms into this window and you think you're going to be seeing a murder scene. Uh, and it's actually a, a couple who've just been having sex, getting <laughs> dressed. And you then realize that, this woman is your main character and she's going to carry you through the whole movie. And the story that's set up is that she's stolen some money. And so it's this suspenseful thing. Will she get caught or not? And he sets up these very exciting scenarios where she almost gets caught. And, and so you're very connected to her plight. And then she, she checks into this motel and gets murdered and boom, your, your main character is dead. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, that, is not what you're expecting. But at the same time, uh, you have some complicity in it because you had all these complicated feelings around that character and your expectations of what you'll be seeing. So it all gets very interesting. Um, and, you know, so really with Telling Lies and her story, I'm directly engaging with that kind of Hitchcockian method of, of giving the audience bits and pieces of information. Um, and letting them put those together and make assumptions and predict things. Um, and then there is the excitement when some of those things turn out to not be the case. But uh, I am scrupulously honest. There are no tricks. <laughs> you know, everything that is happening is, is real in the world, um, it, but characters might be lying or the context that you place on something might be completely false. 
Um, and like you're saying, there is a, a joy in seeing, you know, something, you know, if a character has an arc that goes from A to B to C, you might see C first. And then when you see something earlier and those two butt up against each other, that was, it was never intended by me that someone would watch that clip and then this clip. But, uh, Hitch, Hitchcock also, I think he said something along the lines of like audiences will tend to believe a man's flashback, even if it's false, a little bit of like inborn, like theatrical sexism of sorts. Is, is that something that you've like uh, read for in, in, your, in his work? Um, and there's obviously lots of interesting, uh, problematic uh, gender stuff in, <laughs> in Hitchcock that you could dwell into, or even, but you know, even that ties into the assumptions, uh, cultural assumptions of the time and the storytelling, which was something that he loved to push against in certain ways. Like famously, uh, Psycho was the first time audiences had seen a toilet flush because uh, that was forbidden. You weren't allowed to see the workings of a bathroom, uh, but he he did he made it so there was a scene where uh, uh, the, the initial main character throws away a piece of evidence and flushes it, and he said to the censors, "Well, you you can't remove this because it's a key piece of the plot that she's disposed of this evidence, and, and so please let me keep it." And, and he had put some other scenes in elsewhere that he deliberately put in, knowing that they would ask him to remove them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was again, in terms of subverting things and, and the way he occasionally did that, like with this one, I like one of the things that was interesting about her story that was not necessarily intended was the extent to which people brought their subjectivity to it, like their assumptions. Um, and with telling lies, I'm very much trying to dig into certain characters and certain character types and reveal those in more interesting ways um, and and as well dig into which is another very Hitchcocky thing dig into like who gets to be the protagonist what does it mean to be a protagonist um, that and, uh that, that brings me to another question too is you, you you tie a lot of this to an old anecdote uh about a note you had during the development of silent hill shattered memories the player is not the protagonist uh, yes. Is that is that something that you'd kind of deliberately also kind of included in telling lies, um, having a character who is not necessarily someone we should root for? Yeah, I mean, the, the thing with Silent Hill, that came from a frustration of, again, like the very simple surface take on video games is it's wish fulfillment. Mm. Uh, uh, you know, a publisher will frequently tell you that the main character should be aspirational, should be someone that a teenage boy would want to inhabit. So it's going to be a strong person, a powerful person who has superpowers, right? Like, uh, you know, open world superhero games. Uh, GTA games are, you know, these power fantasies on some level um, that allow you to be someone uh, and do cool stuff and... Um, and you also have like the, the kind of holodeck fantasy where like the, the ultimate version of a video game would be the holodeck where everything, it just looks completely real and you are just there living in this virtual world. And I always thought that was a very uninteresting idea um, because as someone that's interested in stories, for me, stories always come with some distance between me and the main character. And I, I might be wanting to empathize with them. I might have points be in their head. I might be sharing their plight, but you still also have 
uh, a level of distance, which uh, is the interesting place where someone like Hitchcock would, would play. Um, and I remember reading, there was a, a good article, this was a long time ago, by Emily Short, who, who writes just incredibly good stuff about interactive storytelling. There was a, a, a funny text game where I think you were like a, a kind of pastiche of a Conan the Barbarian type. Oh. And um, there was a scene in that where you're ostensibly controlling and inhabiting this barbarian guy and he goes to a a kind of D fantasy brothel and uh, there is this beautiful woman uh that he wants to sleep with and it's very very obvious to the player that actually she is a evil bee creature in disguise <laughs> and she's gonna eat the barbarian uh now the conventional logic of of like you and the protagonist being inseparable would be such that you would act in the interests of the protagonist so you would run a mile from the evil bee creature or smite the evil bee creature but as a person who is enjoying the story what everyone does when they play that game is continues to want to to sleep with the secret bee creature because they know that's going to be the best version of the story that's the most yeah. dramatic way to take the story uh, so in a lot of really good video game stories you you instantly have conflict between me and the character i'm inhabiting um and and really yeah with shadowed memories the whole kind of story and structure was around that um in in a reasonably interesting way where we are playing on this idea of projecting onto the protagonist character the game was telling you that the things you were doing and the answers you were giving to certain things was being analyzed to make this thing reflect you more. So in a way that like, you know, uh, a D and D type game might give you like a personality quiz or, or ask you to create a character. Um, and you might create one that reflects you and making moral choices that reflect your character. Like we were sort of playing with that. And then there was a reveal at a certain point that really kind of turned it on, on its head and asked you to think about what it meant to to kind of project onto this character and uh, the extent to which this character was uh, the idea of, of the hero and stuff um, so i with that game was doing interesting things um and this i mean that partly led to this whole idea with her story of, of very much stepping away from that idea of having a character you pushed around the world mm -hmm. uh, we went on after shadow memories the team we were working for three years on uh, legacy of Kane game that was cancelled but on that project which had a much bigger budget we were trying to do continuing to try and do interesting story things um, but we were also being told by the publisher well you have to have 10 hours of visceral combat uh, the character does have to be aspirational and all these things and we were doing stuff in the story that played against that which was a bit like it's kind of the Bioshock get out of jail free card where you're like, you're going to get to do all the video gamey stuff you want. And then at the end, we're going to slap your hand and say, oh, that makes you a bad person yeah. and, and kind of reframe it. Um, and it felt like you did the fun a, stuff. Uh, so here's your punishment. Like uh, yeah. Dishonored had a similar problem where it's like if you killed more than a few people, you got the bad ending for some reason. And it, it, it felt like the only way to tell an interesting story in that very traditional framework was to do that twist mm -hmm. um, because otherwise you're telling a story about that 
muscly psychopath, right? Yeah. Uh, or you, you throw in just tons of irony, which which half works sometimes for GTA, but GTA never really resolves that uh Uncharted ran into the same problem, really, of like, here's this lovable, affable guy uh, who has definitely murdered thousands of sons, brothers, and fathers. Yeah. Um, so so really, like, in, in saying, well, I don't want to make a game in which I'm controlling a character doing fun stuff, that was a way of, of just stepping away from that entirely. Like, I don't mm-hmm. need to have some postmodern layer to this in order to actually have something to say about the violence in the game, whatever um so really that yeah her story was going in some ways for a a protagonist less thing which is that traditional detective story you know the the Poirot or the miss markle in a detective story is a very thin character there's mm-hmm. no there's no real character there it's a series of affectations and then character traits um but they're there just as your window into the world uh, as an excuse to be prying into these people's business uh, but then at the same time, I did always feel the need to push slightly against that full uh, immersion and surrender. So, you know, in her story, the fact that the screen you're looking at uh, is this particularly affected kind of CRT old monitor. And in it, you can occasionally see the reflection of the person mm-hmm. sat there. And with Telling Lies, we build up much further. So it's, it's very clear that there is somebody sat in front of the screen that you ostensibly are sat in front of. And that I love person that. Is not I, you. I found my head I, moving with her head as, as I played the game. <laughs> I, I mean, testing the game. So I tested the game quite a lot in my apartment in New York. And I would be sat with headphones on. It was a couple of times where I had multiple rigs running the game. And I would hear real sirens going past my apartment and real <laughs> New York apartment sounds. And then I'd be like, wait a minute, no, that was in the game. And <laughs> yeah, yep. setting up this whole virtual New York apartment and then sitting in my New York apartment. And I have the dirtiest, most filthy reflective screen on my MacBook as well. So I'd be looking at myself <laughs> with <laughs> all these different layers. Um, but yeah, that, again, that for me, I think you get something when you push against this total abandonment that we think of as, as a cool video game thing. Um, again, to, to quote Hitchcock, I think there was, he made the point, or, or at least people analyzing his work did that, uh, he, he would thoroughly immerse the audience using all of these suspense techniques. But then every now and then he would puncture that with something that was surprising or didn't make sense or a particularly elaborate visual shot or a joke. Um, and the interesting thing there is when you have someone that is suspending disbelief and is thoroughly engaged, if you push back against that, if you kind of draw attention to the artifice, it's a little bit Brechtian, uh, it almost redoubles. Like they want to they want to stay immersed. So people redouble their efforts. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the the layer of of the, the kind of apartment world in telling lies where you, you you have the world that is happening around you as you're actually looking at these clips. Um, is there is this thing that it I mean it's it's interesting. It gives you a slight frame it, it gives you some distance gives you an excuse in some ways to be doing this thing like i sort of like that kind of poirot character mm-hmm. um, you know the, that really like the classic detective novel is an, uh, an excuse for us to think about our own mortality like by investigating someone else's death it kind of makes us feel happier about ours and feel like all deaths can be explained and justified and made good 
Um, but it's also like the the stuff of a detective or crime thriller is really nitty gritty prying into other people's lives. And as a detective, you have an excuse to barge into someone's bedroom and go through their underwear drawer. You know, you have an excuse to spy on and trail subjects and listen in and tap their phones. It also kind of feels like with detective stories are also like a catalyst for, you know, oh, just one more episode or, oh, just one more hour playing this. I, I have to know how this particular stretch of something turns out or like I have to figure out what connects these dots here and in the game too of course the uh the the woman uh her partner in the apartment is like hey are you coming to bed no sorry <laughs> i gotta i gotta keep doing this someone let me know that they started playing the game at midnight in the real world which is when the game begins uh and, and they were perfectly in sync oh, yeah. <laughs> the the whole thing uh but yeah, no, I get, yeah, They're the, the, the funnest feedback I get is when people say, I loaded this thing up at 8 p.m. just to check it out. And before I knew it, it was 3 a.m. And uh, I'm like, that's good. That's cool. So you mentioned, uh, you know, having having multiple rigs running the game. And I got to imagine prior to that, as you're planning out the, the story and the process uh, and, and building a bigger version of her story, really, with more players and, and more footage, uh you, you were pulling a little bit, it seemed, from, like, your, your former life in, like, business data, transaction history, and stuff like that. What do you, what do you remember most about that, uh, about that, and how... Yeah, it that was, that's, yeah, that's a weird autobiographical thing that I only kind of realized late, after having made her story. So, yeah, I, my first job out of college was, I came to America, and I was working for at the time, one of the biggest business intelligence companies. So this was before big data existed uh, mm-hmm. and, and it's now ruined the world. And I was there on the ground floor <laughs> before it happened. Uh, but I remember the, so they would, you know, create and sell database stuff and, and analysis to banks and the big supermarket companies and things. And I remember the, the boot camp one of the tests you did for the boot camp was you were given a dump of, uh, I want to say Walmart, or someone like Walmart, a, a dump of their data. And you did all this market, what's it called, the, the, the basket analysis. So they would show you, you know, they have everyone's transaction histories. Uh, and they would say, look, we can show that famously, uh, at some point, the grocery stores realized that if you put beer in the same aisle as diapers, they doubled the sales because new parents would be going to get a load of diapers yeah. and buy themselves quite a bit. Um, and and they had all these patterns that they would detect, but it was fascinating to me. And like I, at that point, had a love of interesting avant-garde storytelling stuff so you know uh like jg ballard wrote a bunch of short stories like he, he wrote a short story that was told entirely through the index of a fictional autobiography so i loved these kind of little pretend found stories where you were kind of finding the narrative in something that didn't feel like a narrative thing right you're joining the dots and yeah we would look through these transaction histories and it was amazing how much you could tell about a person's life from just seeing the stuff they were buying in the grocery store. And, you know, you would just see someone's age, gender, the things they were buying, and you could tell a story about it. And that was, I guess, parked in the back of my brain was through this incredibly dry computer database thing, 
I was combining that with my imagination to get to a very human story. Mm-hmm. Um, and that wasn't necessarily the intention going in with her story. But once I'd finished it and I looked back, I was like, oh, like that was interesting. Like I would have players tell me that they felt a more intimate connection to Viva's character in that game, despite her not being alive. Like, you know, you're basically watching static footage of her, but the interface, the exploratory aspect, the fact that you were paying so much attention to her, the fact that you were, you had this loop of typing in natural language words to get to different bits of her story. Like it, it felt more human to them. They felt like more of a connection to that character. Um, so yeah, I kind of, in a roundabout way, gone back to to that thing of just this thing that I had seen uh, at this company of like just just the trail that we leave, the the you know the data we leave, and these little bits and pieces were this incredible prompt for our imaginations to create these stories, and, and really you see that in telling lies, where it's you know you you just have all of this footage, and there's a lot of constraints on the footage and like why would i be seeing this character there's only certain scenarios where it makes sense that we would see a recording of the character Uh, it's often devoid of context you have two people talking to each other and you're only at any given time seeing one side of the conversation Mm -hmm. so it's 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 stripping a lot of this content down to slightly more kind of atomic elements and and we recombine it um, and put it together and make it into an interesting story do do tell me about that because um the dual-sided nature of the story does have a lot of interesting uh connotations throughout the the larger narrative um hearing one side of the conversation and wondering like okay why is he or she upset like right now or like the the tell in their face of course uh what was the process like of writing that when you know a player might only hear one side at a time? So I think the um, early on, this was something I s- decided we were going to do. Um, it was the weirdest part of the pitch. Like when I was pitching this to Anapana, mm-hmm. they were like, we get all of it. And then like called me back the next day and they were like, so hang on, you only see one person talking at a given time. I was like, yeah. And they were like, okay. We'll, assume, we'll believe you that that's going to be interesting. Um, but I was I was really interested in, in knowing that we got to this place that felt kind of intimate, despite all of the artifice and abstraction in her story. I really wanted to dig into that world. And I was thinking like the, at one point the game was called Watch Me Sleep. Um, and uh, a, a piece that I was part of my early mood board was the this art piece by Sam Taylor Johnson, where she filmed David Beckham the soccer player asleep for an right, hour right um and it's this this beautiful video it's fascinating to watch um and i was like really interested in how that was a texture you just don't see in a conventional cinematic format and like all the questions of like what is interesting about watching someone sleep and then what does it mean to have permission to be watching someone sleep to be in this intimate place um so i was thinking about just that whole idea of, of intimate spaces domestic scenes people in relationships characters talking to each other and the, the it seemed to me there were like two extremes there was you know if i watch a sitcom uh, every sitcom will have the scene where the husband and wife are sat in bed talking um and watching that as a viewer at no point do you feel invasive it doesn't feel like you are spying or intruding on a private space because it's done with invisible camera work as a member of the audience mm-hmm. we get that we 
this you know we just we're there and it's invisible and it's a, it's not a thing at all and then you'll have like the uh the the david lynch or hitchcock or, or brian de palma version where uh the camera is in the closet or like moving through, through a slats, window yeah moving through a window and it's like 100 percent you as an audience member are getting a little thrill from the intrusion like mm. everything is being set up here to communicate the the voyeuristic invasive nature of this and uh make it feel um like you know, it, it's slightly uh not perverse but like you're yeah you're you're crossing some kind of social boundary and that's exciting because that's sometimes you go to the cinema to do that um and for me i was interested in figuring out a a kind of third way where there was an acknowledgement that this was in some ways invasive that we were in a privileged position to be here but without the complete what the butler saw kind of voyeuristic side of it and i think when I thought about the the setup of webcam conversations, uh, it was exciting because the camera has no gaze, right? So if I if I'm in the closet looking out in blue velvet, uh, the the camera has a gaze. It's choosing to look at certain bits. It's framing things in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that layer to it. Now, if people are talking on a webcam, it's actually the person talking who chooses the frame. Mm-hmm. which completely flips things um, and so kind of uh, takes that edge off things. And at the same time, if we are looking at these these two sides of the conversation separately, you kind of inhabit this interesting, really interesting thing happens where you're inhabiting the other side of the conversation. So for example, you know, Kerry might be talking and I'm watching this. So it feels like I'm on the other side of a conversation with Kerry's character. Um, and then she stops talking and she's listening. And like you say, we might see an expression on her face. And based on what she was saying, we are, you know, our imagination muscle is working overtime now because we're filling in the blanks. We're imagining what the person on the other side is saying. We might not even have figured out who that person is, right? We might be inferring who she's actually talking to. Um, And then uh, you get some of the game mechanic where I might pick up on a particular question or answer or phrase that feels kind of uh, rhetorical or reciprocated. I'll search that and find the other side of the conversation. Mm. And now I'm sat watching it and I've already seen her side. So I'm almost rerunning that in my head alongside it, but it's still, there's still an act of imagining. Here's the part Um, where someone like says something dumb that upsets their partner or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you've taken the act of watching two people have this intimate conversation and you've given you've restored some of the sense of this is you know you you are have a role you are spying on this thing right but it doesn't feel like you're hidden in the closet it feels like you're almost sat with them yeah um and you know it's that for me was a, a kind of really interesting way of breaking down some of these scenes and, and like I say, making it very even handed in terms of how you experience these relationships as well, because no one, you know, in a given scene, everyone shares the screen time. Um, which... Have you, uh, ha- have you ever been in a long distance relationship? If I may ask. A lot of conceiving of this was at the early days was uh, touring her story around all the different festivals mm-hmm. and, doing a fair amount of FaceTiming 
with my family. Right. Um, so there's definitely stuff taken from that. And I was reading, um, man, I always butcher this author's name when I try and reference this book. Um, I'm going to say Sherry Turkle. Um, okay. She was, uh, kind of heavily involved in research and kind of early internet stuff in the seventies. And at that time was something of uh, an evangelist. Um, I'm getting some authentic New York. Yeah. Perfectly. Like okay. Or no, um, is, that, is that just a, a recording on next to your <laughs> microphone? Yeah. Who knows? Um, and uh, so she, she was one of these people that was like, Oh, uh, technology, the internet uh, is going to change how we communicate. It's going to mm. promote voices. It's going to free us from the trappings of, of all the existing power structures. Um, then now she's a lot more skeptical. Um, but she wrote this great book called Reclaiming Conversation that was about what has technology done to how we communicate and conduct relationships. Um, and you know, she, she covers a, a kind of wide range of things. But I was particularly taken when she was talking about um, intimacy and how things like video chat uh, is very good at supporting a kind of peripheral intimacy. So, uh, you know, someone might be traveling and they call their partner and their partner is preparing a meal whilst just chatting about what they got up to that day. It's very good at supporting that. Like you don't necessarily lose anything mm -hmm. through the, the, the digital nature of that. But when it comes to more direct intimacy, you get into all these really interesting things where um, something as fundamental as eye contact, um, it is possible to have a video chat with someone and feel like they're making eye contact with you. But what that means is that they are deliberately looking at the camera lens yeah. to give you that feeling, but they are not getting it reciprocated. Yeah. Um, and all these little signals kind of go away um, and that changes things. Um, but then conversely, there were people who enjoyed that control uh, over their, their image and especially in, in like courtship and how like the exchanging of nudes and like cam sex have shifted yeah. some of the real world risk and, and given people agency in places and ways that is different, but also introduced other hideous risks. Um, yeah, I was reading a lot about that and, and was kind of super interested in that. And it all kind of dovetailed into some of the subject matter of this game. Um, I uh, felt like it would really fit in the mechanic. I, I asked that original question because you mentioned like the, the framing and, and the way that like, you know, if someone's holding a tablet and having a Skype conversation with a, a partner or a family member, like, yeah, they're choosing the frame that gets that gets shown behind them. Uh, just last night, I was speaking with my partner who lives, I, I live in Los Angeles, and they live in uh, Berkeley, California on the East Bay, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, they had had a horrible day, they had gotten threatened on the BART train, um, just had a real tough day, and had a phone call with them earlier, just saying, you know, hey, everything's going to be okay, you did the right thing, da -da -da, standing up against some asshole in the train, so then we're talking on Discord later. And uh, Discord does this stupid thing with my laptop sometimes, where like it will freeze whatever like image, and mm -hmm. even if I even if I move around, it's still that image. So it froze on my bedroom door and like this plain white wall I have. Uh, and meanwhile, I'm kind of going around the room doing some laundry, but still like trying to talk and show the like, hey, I'm engaged or whatnot. And actually, I I walk back to the laptop 
to like they're getting into a serious part of like describing their day and i can tell it's like emotionally wearing them down and i come back to the camera to show like hey my attention is fully on you and then they ask hey are you still like are you there are you like walking around the room i'm like no i've been here for like three minutes like talking to you and she's like oh your (laughs) your camera froze and i'm like shit uh (laughs) and so that that changed a dynamic uh and i mean we've been long distance for a while now a uh, year and a half or so and we've ups and downs aplenty but uh we've managed to make it work and that i think most of all because there's going to be young people who you know similarly have discord and skype long distance relationships it is we're used to a performative aspect of this too right where I yeah. want I want to make a deliberate show that I care about you and that I am here for you, uh, even though I physically cannot reach out and make eye contact with you. Right? That was that was such a part of like blocking the scenes and stuff. And it's it's interesting because it's the flip of conventional cinema. So you know if if you watch a normal movie or a TV show, uh, they're going to shoot a low angle to make someone look powerful, right? Or they're going right. to flip it. Or they're going to choose a close up, or you know, they're making those choices to to tell the story. But in a given scene here, like, you know, the way we would approach it, we would, one of the things I insisted on was that when we shot this, we were shooting simultaneously in two locations, speaking to each other. And the actors had rigs that were as, as close an approximation to phones, tablets, laptops as possible. They were looking at the screen, seeing the person they were talking to. And, you know, we would, we would so we'd go into the location with, with sit someone down in an apartment or a living room or a bedroom Mm -hmm. and we'd figure out like how are you answering this what does that mean like are you the person who has framed things up are you making the call so you're going to be sat up on the bed sucking your gut in like looking good are you the person that has just been putting the kids down and so you're picking it up on the move towards the kitchen like you you instantly you have all these ways of just communicating all this story just through that initial choice. And then as the scene progresses, characters are making conscious or unconscious choices to change that. So like you say, there's, you know, you, you might be talking and then you realize the person on the other end is saying something significant or, or, or emotional. And so then you're going to sit down and shift the orientation of the camera and, and make that effort, which, which is body language, right? It's, it's the equivalent. It's a digital reach out and, and putting a hand on someone else's hand right it's so you have all of that stuff um that you know and in, uh, from a dry mechanical level like one of the questions i asked early on with this was um you know having made her story how, how do i do more in telling lies with the idea of using your imagination reading between the lines so in telling lies you are dropped into these much longer scenes in the midst of the action and so instantly you're like, who is this person? What is happening? What is happening right now? What has just happened? Mm. Who are they even talking to? Uh, this thing spans two years. So you're like, what time, what time of day is it? What time of year is it? Where are we? Uh, and then you're you know, matching that to the larger plot. And so you have all these things you're asking. And, and now you have the body language of the camera operator is giving you a whole other layer of information as well as the subtext in their performance. You, you know, just the environment dressing and like the team there did an incredible job is giving you other bits of information as well. Um, so there's just all this stuff that, and again, like it's, for me, it's taking what normal 
TV and movies do, right? If, if you watch, uh, I, don't know, I just finished watching Mindhunter. You're watching Mindhunter. Mm-hmm. David Fincher has sat down and he's dressed the set and he's lit the set and he's framing the camera to tell the story. And then he's editing it all together. Um, and so all of that baked in imagery and meaning and subtext is, is part and parcel of that medium. But here we have all of that, but rather than the director say, right now, I'm going to do a close up on this wilting flower to tell you something or put you in that character's POV here, you're very much just giving the audience a ton of information and letting them decide which is the thing that is interesting in this scene. Are they going to stop, rewind and think, oh, that thing they just said is super important. I'm mm-hmm. going to click on that. I'm going to link against that or just like absorb that stuff. And, and, and it's nicely generous. Like that was a key word for me in making telling lies was to try and make a generous game because, um, you know, you might not be someone that cares. You might not be absorbing the, the mise-en-scene. You might not be going, Oh, uh, I'm noticing all this stuff in the background. You might not be the person that is, staring at an actor's face when they're not talking and really absorbing that you might be more interested in the specifics of the plot and and it might be this bit of the plot rather than this bit of the plot but there's so many different layers and strands that people can choose how to engage with it and i think that's kind of interesting as we, we see different ways that people attack this you know, another part, too, that really struck me was, uh, of course, the this chat room relationship that uh, two characters strike up uh-huh. together. Um, uh, uh, this cam girl and David, uh, very early on, you, you get the inklings of, okay, this, this is beginning as kind of a standard cam girl relationship. Hey, pay me $50 and I'll talk to you. Um, and she's peppering him with compliments and... Uh, asking about, you know, getting into his background while kind of playing mysterious coy with hers uh, or giving uh, false uh, leads or whatever, uh, standard cam girl things. But uh, chat room, like the, it is fascinating to see over the course of the broader story how that relationship evolves and gets dismantled in certain ways uh, because at the end of the day, it's, it's any chat room girl is doing it for money, not because she enjoys talking to lonely guys. Um, and I suppose in another way, there's performative activism is also uh, happening in this role. David uh, playing a role with with activists and eventually turning that into a, a relationship. Um, there, there's a thousand ulterior motives, but uh, the performative, I guess, Earlier, we talked about performative as in like, hey, partner, I am here for you. I want you to know that I love and care about you. But there's the other side, the more negative side of that performative activism or performative uh, uh, relationship or or, uh, flirtation or whatnot. Uh, What do you think about when you're kind of writing those aspects of the story in? Yeah, I think for the different characters, there are all sorts of different uh, levels of uh, of, of acting, of game playing, of, of assuming a certain role. And, and in some cases you might uh, be playing a role yourself without realizing it, right? You might have assumed a role. Um, mm. And yeah, I think the, you asked lots of interesting questions there. I'm trying to go through them in my head. Um, 
So let's start with like, like we, the, the we, chat chat room relationships. Maybe. Yeah. So the with the with the cam girl, like from the start, we kind of had an idea that this character made sense to be in this story. Uh, we were very focused on making sure we did our research, understood how this world works, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of interesting stuff from that world, which I was which was the reason this character existed in the story in the first place. I remember reading a statistics that uh, in New York, 40% of sex workers were just talking. Like there wasn't actually any sexual contact. Um, And you understand this kind of therapeutic angle on it. Um, And I think, yeah, out the gate without massively spoiling anything, it was like, what are the worst cliches that we see um with sex workers in movies and tv right. and stories and it was like the idea of the the whore with the heart of gold yeah this idea of like the the a angelic person who is going to redeem probably the the main male character uh despite uh being in this profession um, and so it was interesting to go well no what actually would motivate someone this is a job someone is doing this because they want to earn money and there are reasons why this particular job might make sense um, and they might have other motivations and uh, you know other characters in this story are assuming roles in their jobs um, and there are gradations of, of, of deception and uh, license um, and you know a lot of the interesting questions in this story are um, you know, what, what is a good lie or a bad lie? Mm-hmm. Uh, when is, what, is there a level of consent that people are entering into in terms of like, you know, if, if both people know that they're pretending or there is some gamesmanship, then obviously that, that is much different to uh, a, a one-sided relationship in which that, which that isn't clear. Um, and yeah, this, it was all very interesting. Again, going back to, like the first spark of this thing of, of like thinking, watching someone sleep and how, how well do you know what's going on inside that person's head? How much can you truly know another person? Um, and then reflecting that back on yourself, how much do you truly know yourself? Um, and, you know, people can get into scenarios where they lose track of those things. Um, so yeah, there was lots of interesting stuff to dig into. You know, uh, we, in a more like standard relationship context, it's when you mentioned like knowing yourself, right? Um, I, the most recent like serious argument that I had with my partner was uh, generally about like them getting angry over something. And then my typical defense tactic is uh, uh, I'm really, really good at remaining calm in almost anything. Um, so sometimes it pisses people off. Like my parents, I, I never, I almost never yelled at my parents after like the age of 14. And then, you know, I, I begin to calm down as a teenager. Uh, and my partner very validly pointed out like, Hey, that feels super like fake and demeaning because you're, you're by proxy, like casting me as the crazy one in this relationship. And I'm like, you know what? Okay, yeah, you're actually right. I can totally see that. And so I've I've begun to like open up myself more to allow myself to be angry or upset, so I can at least more effectively communicate. Like, hey, you did this thing and it upset me, and we need to patch that up. As opposed to being like, 
no, everything's okay. Uh, you, you, you go do you, you know, and being salty about it. So that, that performative thing, I think spoke to me in a way too. Uh, tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, yeah, the, the performative activism, uh, kind of part. I, just because it's such a, a, a prominent theme throughout the game with David, uh, infiltrating a kind of a, a group of activists um and I'll, I'll try to remain you know light on serious spoilers here i feel like most of this stuff is stuff that you can uh learn pretty early in the game um yeah i think we, i think um yeah the end of that kind of material was like and it, it's it, it wasn't i mean it's always a hot button topic but i think it's become even more so recently but the idea there was um the people that are seen to be the villains, right? If you talk about domestic terrorism, right? Um, uh, we know that the people who are actually murdering people are the white supremacists. And we know that the people who are actually uh, ruining lives are the big corporations and the, the polluters or what have you. Mm -hmm. But the people that are actually targeted uh, for the, uh, the scrutiny of law enforcement oftentimes it is the people who uh, are challenging the corporations or the existing status quo mm -hmm. um, and so the the perversity of that scrutiny was something that got me in there um but there was definitely yeah once we got into that world um and just trying to pick apart some of that world and, and how it ties into American politics. Yeah, there was yeah. the question of how do people act within these spaces and, and what level of authenticity is there? Um, uh, I had lots of very interesting uh, anecdotes. There was a series of uh, things that happened in the UK where uh, the, the government were targeting some green groups and through the involvement of law enforcement, they ended up doing a series of protests uh, and at one point uh, causing considerable damage to McDonald's. Um, this, this, this big moment where some protesters went to court with McDonald's because uh, oh. McDonald's was suing them for libel and it was a huge public relations disaster for them. And turns out that all that stuff only happened because the involvement of law enforcement if, if they hadn't been there mm -hmm. uh surveilling the meetings and uh pretending to turn up and be involved then the meetings would never have happened because there weren't enough people there and it was this fascinatingly kind of uh irony filled uh scenario um but yeah i think i mean i was i was less interested in the specifics of the causes other than this general idea that, um, you know, these are worthy causes. Um, and like, who is, there's a lot of questions around like, who is the good guy? Who is the, the person doing the right thing? And there's a difference between doing the right thing for the right reasons or the wrong reasons. Um, and yet there's a, a, a few aspects to like the, the group dynamics and stuff. Um, but yeah, I think everything, part of making this story is to make sure that everything sparks off each other. Mm -hmm. So you, you can't truly isolate one thread of the story. Like each story in some way uh, 
ties into the larger themes or casts a light on the other little bits and pieces. So I'll ask you one more kind of theme question here before we dive into audience questions. Uh, I, I would love to know your thoughts about there's several moments in the story without spoiling anything where um, I suppose eventually like the lies or deception or uh, the, the pressure of situations get to be too much and um, relationships change as they often do in stories and some relationships are cut off and I think that for people who are caught in relationships where like lies are uh, a, a big factor uh, you know, a, a degrading factor, that can be one of the toughest things for people to do is to cut off a relationship or to say like, hey, no, I, we, we can't keep going on at least like this. Uh, is that something that you've had personal experience with in any notable way? And like, how, how did you want to kind of communicate the different arcs of like, here's these characters finally saying enough is enough with this current predicament? I think that that was a big part of um, this idea of getting out from under uh, a, a traditional way that this story might have been told in terms of who gets to be the protagonist, mm -hmm. who's in control of their stories. Um, and it was important to me that certain characters, like there's a, there's a version of this that was often borne out by our research that ends in a, in a very depressing place. And there are definitely bits of, this story that are quite sad and, and, and I don't think anyone comes out of it um, untouched in, in any way. But in kind of wrestling with the story, like it was important to find the version of this story where the characters all had their own arc and where certain characters were able to wrestle control back um, mm -hmm. and have the final say in some way. Um, and that, for me was important. Like I remember seeing uh, Moonlight when it first came out and being so impressed that like that genre of, you know, indie, indie movie about some really like about some kind of social realism subject matter. Like this is, this is a slice of life from someone and there are a lot of very bad things happening in their life and like the very traditional indie version of that would have been to end on a bleak ending right because mm -hmm. a, a blockbuster movie has to have happy endings so your indie movie is going to have a bleak ending um and i can think of lots of examples and i was so impressed when moonlight found a way to be hopeful and and, and not in like a, a cartoony way but like just gave the character a little a little chink of, of hope at the end and, and finished it in such a place that you could um, you know, you didn't just walk away feeling like there was no point. Um, so in terms of tackling some of the subject matter here and seeing these relationships and, and, the, and, and seeing how some of them uh, go wrong and, and understanding that there are large uh, injustices and abuses happening in this story, it was like, how do we, in a way that doesn't feel fake, like find ways for these characters to um, wrestle control of their own stories. Mm. Um, so that was like, th that was a big kind of part of, of breaking the story. And, you know, some characters uh, come out in a slightly better place than others, but yeah, making sure that, and then we, I remember we had a focus test where I guess when we first put 
the real footage in, the kind of rough cut, the footage into the game. We had people play it and we'd have them play it for like four hours and then ask them to tell us the story back. Um, and it was amazing to see that different people would pick a different character essentially as this is the story of X and, and they would pick different characters and sort of tell it through the lens of that different character. Um, so it's kind of heartening to see that people were able to um, kind of gravitate towards the character that resonated with them and then kind of create this this whole story for them. I think uh, I, I in my first playthrough, I I focused heavily on David, I think just by nature of the, the story, a lot of it swirls around him, right? But um, yeah, seeing, seeing characters and where they end up by the end, I felt like, okay, this feels like every character is actually a character and like the story doesn't, they don't cease to exist as soon as they're off of the camera. Right. Um, yeah. And, and I think that I appreciate it. And you also kind of answered actually one of our audience questions here, talking about play testing, uh, telling lies is a large complex game. Uh, this is from at commander club on Twitter. Uh, just wanting to know how play testing works. He says telling lies is a large complex game where it must be extremely hard to intuit what is in the player's head, although perhaps not what they've written down. Uh, and actually I wrote, I wrote five pages of notes. I'll have, you know, <laughs> uh, was the script iterated by play testing? And if so, how you kind of already answered that, but is there any other aspect to the play? Yeah. Testing? So the secret source, uh, which I kind of road tested on her story and then, then continued here was um, like the, the story development stage, uh, research, story development, script writing, that all happens over a long period of time and is very organic and true to the characters. Like we're not kind of uh, trying to mold things to work with the game mechanic in inverted commas. Um, but once that first script is done, then there is an iterative process that's entirely computer driven uh, where the computer breaks down the script and sees the connections we've created accidentally or, or deliberately in terms of the words and phrases and themes that are used. And we'll kind of point out, Oh, there's like a scene at the end of the game. that's really hard to find because it doesn't use many unique words or it'll be like this particular word is used so much. It's practically useless. Um, and by then iterating on the script using that feedback we kind of tweak it and it might be that you know there is a synonym we use here and a synonym here and we combine them and make them the same word or it might be that like we change the tense of a phrase so that there's a, a connection or we'll realize that a certain word is used too much um and so we through iterating that create something which on a mathematical level is balanced like the, the computer looks at it and goes this is nicely connected in a, in a useful way and then we have people play test it and we get all the stats so then we can see like yes it might be true that this particular scene has a bunch of words that make it easy to find but no one's searching for those because they don't resonate with them these aren't words that feel useful that to is that... so there's another iterative step but it's it's so it's very much it's, it's iterative and it's holistic. It's like we, we look at the whole thing and how it's connected. There isn't like a path that we want to hit or a particular order. We're just looking at the mm -hmm. whole thing and making sure that it's, you know, in, in a similar way, again, I, I always in my head just re reference Zelda Breath of the Wild as this game where the way they embraced the freedom of that game was genuine and generous. It was like you can go in any direction. And in that game, that's true. Like Nintendo means it. You can go in any direction and it's fun and it looks good and there aren't artificial barriers. And, you know, there must have been an iterative process 
where they make sure there's a distribution of stuff, where they make sure that every view is interesting, right? There's, there's a kind of a sculptural approach where you just keep looking at it from different angles and smoothing off the edges. Uh, so that was essentially the process here. You, you answered a, a good question that uh, Twitter user VG of the day sent me just talking about the, the do you feel like you have to pepper keywords or dialogue or whatever, but that is actually way more like data driven than I would have ever imagined uh, the structure of a game like this being. That's that's crazy to hear that you, you use the computer to really analyze your script and then like modify it from there. Yeah, no, it's, it's that's definitely like my... I have like a strong left brain and right brain thing. So it's like go full character driven script writing. Just make that like try and be true to their voices and their character and then swing to the other side. Um, but it's as a writer, it's it's a horrendous process because it like every, every writer has their tells or their phrases right. or the words that whatever character you're writing, they're all saying the same thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and But this process, it's like, hey, dude, you keep saying well and it's like oh crap no all my characters are constantly modifying they've always throwing just well or just just as my evil that's that's the one i use characters are constantly saying just um but yeah it's it's fascinating to just apply that level of kind of scrutiny to the written word that you've created um but yeah, that's the special source. We uh, will end here with a fun one uh, from Mark Bamber on Twitter. Uh, assuming able to see, assuming you're able to see all search terms players are using, what's the weirdest like keyword search you've ever seen a player try to try to kick off? Uh, so this this is a shame because uh, uh, with her story we. Um, Actually, there was a feature within the game. You could type a certain secret word and it would send me all of your information oh, God. so that I could create a giant word cloud of it. Um, with Telling Lies, uh, we had it all hooked up to be more sophisticated, but with the GDPR laws, we were yeah. like, okay, <laughs> we probably can't do this. But um, I recently, uh, to create the kind of the Her Story word cloud, I recently went and, and pulled in all this data that people have been sending me. And... I was looking through it and a lot of it was reasonably kind of obvious stuff because, um, you know, they're reacting to the story on screen. But there was one there was one bit where uh, someone had searched for, I can't recall, I think I tweeted about this at the time, but it was something like boobs over and then like a Scottish town. Let's say Glasgow. <laughs> so, so it was boobs over, well, actually Glasgow features in that game, it wouldn't have been Glasgow, but it was like boobs over uh, Edinburgh, let's say. Yeah. And I was like, this is so weird. Like, <laughs> the, the, like Glasgow's in the story. Like, are they? Why are they doing this? And then I'm like, okay. And I went away and I googled boobs Edinburgh, <laughs> and it came up with a new story about how a, a a bunch of giant hot air balloons in the shape of breasts or udders had been flown over Edinburgh as a promotional stunt, and it was like July second, twenty fifteen. So it was like two weeks into the game being launched. So clearly someone had accidentally pasted like their Google search or tried to alt tab and accidentally spat this thing into the game. Um, but that was like my own little bit of fun detective work where I was like, how on earth? And then it just opened up this whole story. And, That's crazy. Uh, and there was, yeah. And then there was the, there was a group who used the, this feat, this feature where you could send your data to me and, uh, 
they like overrode the data with a message to me saying, hey, we're a bunch of players in Russia and we're actually setting up our own detective agency because we've been so inspired oh my God. by her story. <laughs> and uh, actually, you, I, and I saw this like, I don't know, three years after the fact and emailed them back and was like, hey, how's the detective agency going? Um, I have not heard back. So, um, but I, th I think they, they, it was more interesting because one of them said, oh, one of us used to be in the Russian army in the special investigations division or uh, something and just all of my like cold war movie ideas of what <laughs> what that role would involve i was like oh my gosh um uh, you're, you're gonna be which, getting called to court for <laughs> inspiring some beatdowns yeah well i got I, I was asked at one point by the american army to help the the team that trains field interrogations in afghanistan wanted to create a tool using her story to oh, train cool. people and i was like i don't know that kind of sounds scary <laughs> yeah. you say field interrogation to me that just sounds scary like i don't know if i want to do that oh um, my god but yeah that was uh that was yeah it's funny i um when, whenever you ask people to type natural language it gets interesting uh so i, I made this text game a long, long time ago called isle uh which has had a long successful life as a cult little game but people would send me their transcripts for that if they had a bug or 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 something and and then you'd go through them and uh and also make requests so like the the idea of that game was you could pretty much type anything within this ray constraint scenario there's a, a guy in a pasta aisle in a supermarket so you what happens in the story if my guy climbs the shelf and starts throwing pasta everywhere or screams or takes all his clothes off? Like, you know, it was it was like, what happens if you do the weird things that players type in? Um, but the one thing that the game did not support that people got really like I got lots of requests for was that there was there was a woman described as being a brunette woman in the supermarket aisle. And the game did not support the ability to pull or smell her hair. Oh. And I got tens of requests from people like this this command has no response like i should be able to do this in the game um so the the kind of hair fetishists outed themselves as being particularly uh prevalent amongst the interactive people it is it is going to take all of my strength to not to not uh title this episode boobs over edinburgh with sam barlow <laughs> Uh, Sam Barlow, Telling Lies, is available now on Steam and iOS. Uh, give it a play. It is a fascinating game. And folks, every Monday you can find a new episode of the 1099 here on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and elsewhere. Sam, again, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks for playing the game and talking to me about it.